Hi, everybody. This is Jay Siegel. I'm the lead singer of The Tokens, and you're listening to Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream, and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is David Lieber, the rock and roll warrior. He's written an autobiography with that title. He was the co-lead singer of The Happenings, the group that had million selling hits with See You in September and I Got Rhythm. He went on to several other careers in the music business. He was the tour manager for Alice Cooper and the manager of Parliament Funkadelic and Sheila E. Oh, and he also went to prison for dealing drugs along the way. What an interesting life, huh? We're going to talk about all of this. And in the middle, as you know, I like to do a song fest with my musical guests where we've picked out a handful of songs that are important in David's career. We're going to play them and talk about them. You'll get the backstories. And nobody else does this in podcasts. And you also know that I like to feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end of every episode. And I always try to make the song relevant somehow to my guest. And my featured song in this instance that you're hearing now is called Hey Jake from the album East Side Sessions by my band Project Grand Slam. Why did I choose this? Well, David and the Happenings hit the musical Motherload in the 1960s. And Hey Jake has that 60s vibe in spades. So David Liebert, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thank you, Robert. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. I wish everybody could see. You got a wall full of gold records behind you. I mean, we only do the audio. We don't do the video on this podcast. But I mean, it's quite impressive. Okay. Well, hopefully I won't have to smelt them down someday. <laughs> that's right. Are they made out of pure gold, by the way? You know, that's a good question. Uh, when I got um, my first gold record, it was a single of See You in September and the Happenings. I guess I was crazy one night and I decided to break the frame open and put the, uh, put the record on the turntable. Just, you know, to hear it. <laughs> well, it turned out that what it is, it's not really, it's gold colored plated. And what it is, it's a, it's a gold colored plated master of the, uh, what printing presses used to use, and I suppose they still do, to stamp the record, you know, uh, right. uh, in plastic. So I put the thing on and, uh, I had to turn manually turn the table turntable in the opposite rotation it normally goes because it's a mirror image because it's a master pressing uh, you know plastic records and it turned out to be not see you in September by the happenings it turned out to be so fine by the fiestas so ah. I guess they didn't think anybody would be crazy enough to break the thing open so it didn't really matter what it was that was uh, 
<laughs> That's interesting. I was going to ask you if it, if you heard Paul is dead when you played it backwards. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. For anybody that doesn't know, there was a time when everybody thought that Paul McCartney had died and that everybody took out the records and there were all kind of these images and stuff in the records. But of course, that yeah, wasn't played true. it backwards. That's right. That's right. So, you know, that's so interesting. I did always wonder whether these gold records were real records or not. And I guess they were, but they weren't necessarily the one that you got the award for, huh? Well, they threw the, your label on it, and they figured that should be enough to convince somebody that was the record was, till I came along, I guess. Sounds good to me. All right, so take us back to the beginning. Tell us how the happenings came into being. Uh, we were... Uh, a bunch of kids from Patterson, New Jersey, and we used to listen to a lot of doo-wop bands. The, you know, at that time there were there were bands called uh, the Paragons, the Jesters, the Diablos, and so we used to hang out on, on uh, in the parking lot of this restaurant that we used to frequent, and uh, we would chirp. We called it. We would be chirping and what we would be doing was singing these doo-wop songs of these uh, bands and uh, our main incentive for doing that was it was a great way to meet girls I don't think any of us were really thinking about uh, making a career of it until we started to realize hey you know what we're as good or if not better than most of these bands that we're hearing on the radio then we started to take a more serious uh, a look at the whole thing. So I started pounding the streets of Tin Pan Alley, which is a uh, section of Manhattan uh, where there were a lot of music buildings, like the Brill Building, that's the most famous of them all. Right. And these buildings would house various uh, publishing companies, record companies, uh, production companies. If it was a publisher, I would walk in and tell them I was a songwriter. You didn't have a record with you. You were just going in to talk to the guys. Is that it? We had a little demo that we made. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, if it was a record company, uh, you know, I was in a band. If it was a production company, you know, we had a, a vocal group, whatever, whatever fit the uh, situation. That's what we were. And then um, I walked into the offices of Bright Tunes Production which was housed in one of these buildings. And this company was owned by the Tokens. The Tokens were a well-known vocal group. They had a couple of huge hits, The Lion Sleeps Tonight. And I just had Jay Siegel on the podcast. That's right. So I know all about the Tokens. And uh, they liked our little band, and they decided to give me and uh, Bobby Miranda, the elite singer of our, uh, of our group, they gave us a little a job for $25 a week each. Um, they gave us a little room with a piano in it, and it was our job to write songs for their publishing company, of course. But part of the deal was they also uh, agreed to produce the happenings in this, as uh, the, ha the happenings records. And uh, that's how all that came about. Um, and then I guess the second session we had with them was... Uh, See you in September, and uh, somehow or other, that ended up being number one that summer, and that really gave us, you know, our start to uh, fame and fortune. You know what? Uh, normally, I wait a little bit longer, but because you mentioned it, let's play a little bit of it now. I'll be alone each and every night. 
Tell me how you got to that song. Did they recommend it? Did you guys decide to do it? What was the backstory there? We recorded three songs. One of them, uh, Bobby and I wrote. Uh, I don't even remember what the other one was. Uh, and see you in September. And they all came out pretty good. Uh, we wanted to go with uh, this song that Bobby and I had written here, Coming On Strong, it was called. And Mickey Eichner, who was the head of uh, promotion for Jubilee Records, the distributor of the uh, of the label we were on, which was owned by the Tokens, he said, "Look, put out this. See you in September. I, I think it's a smash, and I think that um, if we're going to put it out at all, we got to put it out now. It was around the end of May, because if it was going to be a hit, Mickey said it would have to be a summer hit, and." Uh, if we're going to put it out, we got to put it out now. And we, no, we want to go with this other song. And he basically beat us into submission. We really didn't uh, think it had anything going for it. So they put it out and they send 3,000 promotional copies to every top 40 formatted radio station in the country. And not one single station decided to play it. So we thought it was a, just a dismal failure. Oh boy. However, Mickey, whose job very well might be on the line with the failure of this uh, record, somehow or other begged and groveled and got WBCN in Boston, a pretty big station, to give him a three-week commitment. Uh, and then, uh, so they said, okay. And then uh, Mickey went out and said, hey, BCN is playing. And he went to all these... Um, New England stations in Hartford and Buffalo and New Haven, uh, anywhere he could convince him, hey, BCN is on it, you should get on it too. So he got a bunch of, uh, well, the first week in Boston, nothing. The second week in Boston, there was a trickle of sales. By the third week, uh, it started to sell. Uh, it started to sell well enough that BCN decided to stay on it past the three-week commitment. And then it really started to settle. They put it into heavy rotation. All these other stations started to see that it was uh, selling in their markets as well. Oh, interesting. I'm curious, what, what, what did they charge for the single at that time? How much did it cost for somebody to buy the single? See, you know, I have trouble remembering what, what happened last week. You want me to- I bet you it was about 79 cents or a dollar, something like that. Something like that. It was less than a dollar. It was less than a dollar. I mean, an album was only about $2.15 or something like that back then. So the single had to be almost nothing. And albums were really just coming into uh, prominence at that time. When Seaman September came out, the music industry, the music universe was changing. Prior to, um, I guess, 1967, people listened to AM radio. And all of a sudden, 
FM radio came into prominence, it changed everything. And also music was changing. We were a vocal group. We, We evolved into a band. We all played instruments. But prior to that, um, most bands didn't write their own songs and didn't play their own instruments. This is was part of uh, uh, you. Know, we as happen as the happenings, we had to change as well. Otherwise, we simply weren't going to survive. Everything was changing, and FM radio catered to these new bands that didn't really uh, write. AM friendly songs. They were longer cuts. They were deep cuts. It was albums, right? The whole thing changed. I agree with you. Everything changed. And so we had a change as well. And uh, FM radio up until that moment was a basically unlistened to radio frequency band. I guess if you were a classical music buff, you may, uh, uh, you may have had a reason to listen to FM radio. But all of a sudden, boom, and it just seemed to happen overnight. There were these new stations that were promoting these kinds of AM unfriendly bands. And uh, FM radio was much better quality than AM. Fidelity was better. No question yeah, about it. Quality, but it didn't, it didn't reach as far, but it was much better quality. And also they broadcast in stereo. Exactly. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller. Live at Steel Stacks is the new five-song EP by my band, Project Grand Slam. It absolutely captures the band at the top of our game. Musicians and reviewers alike have praised the recording, saying things like captivating music. Project Grand Slam burns down the house. Virtuoso musicians and such a great band. You can stream live at Steel Stacks on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or any of the other streaming platforms. And you can download it from the PGS store. The links are all in the show notes to this episode. Please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so yet. You can do so, and you can listen to our 100-plus episodes just by going to our website, at followyourdreampodcast.com. So join me each episode as we go on a world tour to my listeners in 200 countries. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. All right, so I'm curious now. You have a big hit. I can't believe 3,000 disc jockeys wouldn't play it initially. Okay, how foolish they must have felt. And then I'm sure almost all of them got on board when it became a hit. Yeah, as soon as it started to make some noise, and especially when WABC in New York finally decided to add it to their playlist, all hell broke. By the following week, every single top 40 station in the country had added it. Yeah, I know. I know how it goes there. All right, so your follow-up was I Got Rhythm. Rhythm, 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 
I want to ask you two questions about number one, you were doing that falsetto thing on these records, which I found really interesting. And secondly, why'd you choose that song? Okay. How did that one come about? I don't know how we actually chose it, but uh, that's a good question. I really don't know the answer to that, but it was, it was part of a recording session. There were three or four songs and uh, that one just, just turned out to be terrific. Our, our best, I believe it was the best single we ever made. And um, when we listened to the playback of the final mix in the studio, we all knew it was a smash hit. You know, we had the momentum of the of uh, two or three hit records before then. And this was, uh, it just sounded like a hit. And it was, it uh, became an immediate success. And uh, the harmonies, I don't know if I ever told anybody this, but the influence really, I think, was the mamas and papas, the back and forth on the chorus, the, the guy's old man trouble, and then the old man trouble. It went back and forth a couple of times. I was influenced, I think, by the mamas and papas style of uh, of harmonizing. But I did the um, I did all of the uh, 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 vocal arranging on on our records. Uh, I had uh, had uh, several years of piano lessons, and my teacher had the uh, the good sense to teach me chord theory. So I was able to apply all of that to the vocal arranging of the happening songs. And I was influenced by not just the Beach Boys and the the Four Seasons, which is obvious, but I listened a lot to bands like the High Lows and the Four Freshmen, uh, Lambert, Henriks, and Ross, uh, the Double Six of Paris. I was fascinated by their intricate, sophisticated harmony uh, structures. So I tried to apply that. Uh, I mean, we even, we had a, uh, in between, let's see you in September and I Got Rhythm, we had a hit record, My Mammy, which was an old Al Jolson song. Because I was kind of fascinated with uh, barbershop quartets, is you know just one genre of of harmonizing that I liked, and uh, so it kind of applied that to that. To... Yeah, that was interesting. I mean, you you had it was a different kind of choice of songs for you guys than so much of what was happening at that time. And then you did another song that was always one of my favorites, both by you and also by others, and that is "Go Away, Little Girl." That Goffin and King composition. Oh, yes, I know that your lips are sweet, but our lips must never meet. I belong to somebody else, and I must be true. Please go away, little girl. Go away, little girl. Go away, little girl. Go away, little girl. It's hurting me more each minute that you delay. 
and I was reading up on this in advance of talking to you today, Bobby V had the first release of that song and it hit number one. Then Steve Lawrence did a remake of it and his hit number one. And that was the one that I remembered the most. I know that your lips are sweet, but our lips must never meet. I belong to someone else and I must be true. And then you guys came in, and then Donny Osmond, years later, had another re-release of that song. So it's been through the mill, but it was a great song. Yeah, there's 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 uh, nothing like a good song to uh, help you be successful. And obviously, that one had really had legs. A lot of people had a hit with uh, "Go Away, Little Girl." Sounds good. Okay, I want to ask you about some of the things that you did after the happenings because. You know, you went on to do tour management, like for Alice Cooper, which is just wild in comparison to what you were doing for the happenings. And then you had these instances where you were managing these other groups that were just light years away again from the happening. So why did you make a switch in your career like that? I think that um, as far as the happenings were concerned, and I think I mentioned this before, I felt the happenings had to change their musical style, or they simply weren't going to survive. They uh, they were becoming passe. And I wanted to apply what we did best, which was our harmonizing techniques, to more contemporary things, like what Crosby, Stills, and Nash did, uh, who were just becoming into prominence right at that time. And the other happenings would hear none of it. They uh, They felt that their future was continuing to play colleges and nightclubs. Um, and I felt that was the very definition of obsolescence. I didn't want to do it creatively, or I thought it was a bad business decision. So I had decided to leave the band and uh, pursue other avenues uh, within the music industry. I felt that, well, I, I should mention that uh, we got rid of our manager, our actual manager, very early in all of this. And I took over the management duties and uh, learned a lot about how it worked, dealing with the record company and the booking agencies and all of that. And uh, when I started to become unhappy with the happenings, I realized that I probably have a, uh, maybe I have a future in the business end. I felt I could manage other bands and do other things. I was pretty sure I couldn't be a happening forever. So that was the motivation to leave. But Alice Cooper, I mean, that's about three light years away from the happenings. So how'd you do that? Well, when I left the happenings, I did a few different things. I I uh, was a house booker for a couple of clubs in Long Island, and I worked for this uh, uh, woman, Betty Sperber, who was a manager. She managed uh, Johnny Maestro and the Crest and the Five Stair Steps, and uh, I learned I learned a bit from her. And then I got a job as 
road manager for Rare Earth, a band from Detroit. And uh, I did that for several months and that was a pretty cool job. And then one day I got a call from Johnny Podell, who was Alice Cooper's booking agent. And he said that the Alice Cooper band was looking for a, a tour manager. And uh, I ended up getting the job. And I also thought I'd made the biggest mistake of my life because I remember that first gig. First of all, I didn't know what, what I was doing. And Shep Gordon, Alice's uh, manager, said, you know, just observe. You'll get the hang of it. Don't, Because I had no idea what I was supposed to do. Are you in charge of making sure that the boa constrictor was fed and things <laughs> like that? <laughs> that was just one millionth of the job, as it turned out. I thought I made the biggest mistake of my life. My first perception of all this at that first gig was uh, just 30 or 40 insane looking people crawling all over all this gear and equipment. And uh, I said, oh my God, what did I get myself into? But by the end of the week, things started to fall into place. I started to get the hang of it. And I realized that this all was something very special. So it wasn't really the music that I gravitated to. It was the... Uh, it was the job itself. And I ended up having uh, maybe the greatest mentor anybody could possibly have in the music business, Superman Shep Gordon, who uh, taught me basically everything I know about the business. So much so that I was able to, even after Alice Cooper, have a successful uh, career in music. All right. So I'm, I'm assuming that Alice Cooper is, you know, 98% shtick, and he's really not quite the same way as he is perceived on stage. Give me your impressions of what he was like on that tour. Alice Cooper doesn't take himself seriously for one instant. He takes what he does seriously. That's, a, that's how he makes his living. But he really just wanted to be one of the guys. He's not a prima donna. He, um, he's just really a very nice thoughtful human being and uh i think everybody who worked for him killed themselves for him because they simply loved the guy he was just a great uh person to work for and he was it was all fun and it uh it was just a terrific situation uh you know alice and i are still friends today and i i'll go to see him every once in a while when i can i saw him at the greek theater in los angeles several months ago and it's always great to see him and some of the other people I've worked with and his his lovely wife, Cheryl. And, you know, we, it's always great when we get back together again. I think it's fantastic that he's been able to take that persona and make it work for as long as he has. You know better than most people that it's awfully hard to stay relevant and towards the top or at the top of the music industry because things change so rapidly and taste changes, of course. But the guy's been there for, I don't know, how many years, right? 45 years. There you go. There you go. All right. So tell me about some of the other guys you work for, too. He's, you know, Alice Cooper is not perceived the same way he was perceived 45 years ago. There they, they thought he was, you know, a monster who bludgeoned kittens and puppies to death, uh, uh, you know, none of that. I mean, he was far more comfortable playing golf with Perry Como than, uh, uh, you know, anything else. He's just a real sweetheart of a guy. 
And you mentioned the other other people that I work with. Yes, Parliament Funkadelic and Sheila E. You manage those people. Tell me about some of that. Well, George is the reason I'm probably have no hair on top of my head. Uh, that was a bit of a uh, well. What I saw in George was I realized. This, he was going to be very successful because he was giving something very unique to his targeted audience that no one else was. You know, we're talking about George Clinton, by the way, for anybody that doesn't know. George Clinton was the uh, uh, the creator and producer of the band Parliament Funkadelic, um, which was just a huge, uh, um, just a hugely successful uh, funk band. Probably the most successful funk band there was. I mean, we were there was a time we were selling out stadiums uh, at some point in his career. And why was he so successful? There was a, a, a burgeoning population of middle class and upper middle class um, African Americans and their children who were uh, teenagers or college age didn't really relate all of that well to what their parents listened to in terms of music. They weren't into the OJs and that R&B type of thing. And they couldn't relate all that well to Alice Cooper or Led Zeppelin, they needed a, a music of their own to embrace. And that's exactly what George Clinton gave them. Uh, funk, and it was funkier, druggier. Uh, you know, they, they were able to relate to it. And, and uh, uh, I believe that's the reason uh, Parliament Funkadelic was so successful. And Boosie's rubber band as well who uh, I was also uh, booking and then managing. Uh, you know, I guess life is a series of crossroads and some are good turns, some are bad turns. George Clinton was a great turn and uh, I, uh, I, I, I appreciated what it was that he was doing. There's nothing like a P-Funk concert. You go to a P-Funk a concert and uh, uh, you're going to shake your ass off for a couple of hours. It's, it's, it's like nothing else in music. All right, let's go to one more. You, you worked with Sheila E. and I assume with Prince at the same time. Tell us a little bit about that situation. When Prince was starting to become the huge super, super superstar that he was, uh, he was uh, he was producing Sheila E, and she was also managed by his managers. And he said to them, "Listen, uh, you're not going to have time to manage Sheila E anymore because you're going to be devoting all your time to me. Find someone to manage her." 
So they went out and got me. I seem to be a, uh, you know, an adequate uh, person. And I guess they felt they could kind of have me under their thumb a little bit. And uh, so that's how I ended up managing Sheila E. I was just handed her on a silver platter there. And uh, it was a great experience. It was it was great to get to know Prince. I like Prince. Uh, you know, he was far different than anyone else I really worked with. How so? How was he different? Well, Alice Cooper ruled out of love. Everybody worked really hard for him because they, they admired him and respected him so much. Prince ruled out of fear. Um, everybody was afraid of him. Uh, he, um, he, why did he rule out of fear? I don't know. Uh, he was sort of very antisocial. He was very awkwardly social. And um, maybe it was his, he was small in stature. He was only five foot two. I don't know what the reason was, but um, everybody walked on eggs around him. But he was, and he could be brutal with the people he were, his managers, his band members. He was very nice to me. And I think the reason was, is that he knew of my uh, my history with George Clinton, someone that he really idolized, and that I had worked with Alice Cooper. And um, my guess is that he just didn't want to look like a jerk in front of me. And uh, it's funny. I mean, uh, uh, I I like the fact that Princess even cared what I thought about him, but uh, but he didn't. We got along well, and uh, of course nice? he was. Just incredible talent. Uh, he was an interesting guy. You've had quite an interesting career here, David. We've been speaking here with David Liebert. We started off with The Happenings, then he went on to Alice Cooper, then he went on to Parliament Funkadelic and Sheila E. and the whole thing. Quite a career in the music industry. Really interesting. And I thank you so much for being on this podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Robert. And he's got a book that's out called Rock and Roll Warrior. Okay, so everybody got to go out and take a look at that book. And now I want to uh, play again the song that we started off the episode with. It's my song called Hey Jake. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. <laughs>